Welcome to 5 Minutes to Chaos, the podcast that dives deep into the world of chaotic emergencies and complex crisis management. In each episode, we'll engage with emergency managers and crisis leaders to explore the challenges that arise in times of crisis and the strategies they employ to navigate through them. From natural disasters to technical failures to human-caused events, we'll examine real-life scenarios that put crisis managers to the test. Join us as we uncover the lessons learned from past emergencies and gain insight into the complexities of crisis management. With five minutes to chaos, you'll be better prepared to face the unexpected when it strikes. Let's dive in. Good morning, everybody. This is Steve Curry, your host to Five Minutes to Chaos, an unrehearsed, unscripted podcast with the goal of promoting crisis management through the raw experiences and observations of emergency managers, crisis leaders, and incident commanders that have led their teams through complex and challenging situations. Today, we have uh, a special guest. I know I say that every week, but I mean it today, as I mean it every week, because people that want to be in my podcast to me are special. But uh, like I said about Ashley last week, uh, Kelly McKinney is extra special to me because we have worked together and we have an interesting career path, uh, which we'll talk about as a founding member of New York City OEM. Kelly succeeded me by a number of uh, several years, but had the same job that I did uh, when I when I retired out of OEM. It's a, it's an interesting uh, uh, relationship that has transcended uh, the decades. Kelly will talk about his his career pedigree, but I also want to mention that he's also the author of the book. Uh, uh, I just had it right in front of me. Uh, Moment of truth. Moment of truth, the nature of catastrophes and how to prepare for them. That was embarrassing because I've read it and I absolutely love that book. Kelly, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sarah. Great to be here. Great to see you. Yeah, we have uh, we have worked some some big jobs together and uh, we have uh, some shared uh, DNA. We have, um, you know, certainly... Uh, I have a couple interesting ones to think about. You know, Hurricane Sandy, notwithstanding uh, the overfluorination event, in uh, <laughs> right, but you wouldn't even have thought of that one. Yeah, yeah, it's, that, it's that, funny, you so, know. If you think about it, there was there was so many uh, big incidents that are that have just slipped away because they're overshadowed by some of these. Yeah, monumental... so we'll talk about that. So yeah. t t tell the folks about your um, your career, because it's uh, it it's it's not just about New York City and it's not just about, uh, you know, being being an author of one of the more prominent EM books. Well, uh, first of all, Steve Kerr, I uh, uh, as I was saying uh, before we went on air, I have a tremendous respect for you and and. Uh, you know, the work that you do and the voice that you have in this business. And, you know, when I went to OEM in 2006, February 2006, I went to the Office of Emergency Management. And it was, uh, in some ways, it was like a second generation because the first generation, the founders, many of them weren't there. Some were, but I'll tell you that the, the legacy was there and the culture was there. And I was steeped in that original 
uh, OEM, Mayor's Office of Emergency Management Culture. And in fact, almost everything we did, people would compare it to what you all did, you know, in the late 90s and the early 2000s. And they'd be like, you know, you know, that was a, that was a pretty good job, but it was nothing like what Howard and Kerr would have done back in the day, you know. So we were always sort of compared against, you know, that legacy. But I learned so much. Uh, I learned um, really everything about this business from from the years that I spent in the city of New York at the Office of Emergency Management. And um, I took, I was a deputy commissioner for, for uh, preparedness. That was Eddie Gabriel's job. And, you know, uh, God rest his soul. Eddie was a legend in this business. He went to Disney after that. And then he was at the, um, he was at the, the Asper. He was uh, an assistant director at, at HHS. Um, and I remember when I got that job, Eddie called me from, from Disney. And um, the only thing he said to me was, don't screw it up, you know? And I said, that, thanks, Eddie. That's, 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 that's pretty helpful. But um, I, I'm an engineer. I'm, I'm from the Midwest. I was, I was working in the engineering business uh, in, uh, in the Midwest. And then I uh, was assigned to a project in Honolulu. I worked there for a year. So I'm in Honolulu and I'm working there. And uh, my boss from the headquarters called me and said, how'd, how'd you like to go to New York? And I said, sure, you know, I'd love to go to New York. He said, well, there's a ticket waiting for you at the airport. And I was like, you mean now? And, and uh, so I found myself in Rockefeller Center. I was working a big engineering project at, uh, at uh, across the street. It was, it was the Exxon building then. And that was a long time ago. Uh, I, I found myself eventually working for the city health department. I was the associate commissioner for environmental health. And uh, at the health department, the health department is, has sort of many, many missions. Um, but they broadly break down into disease control, human disease control, and then sort of everything else. And my office did a lot of the everything else. We, we inspected every restaurant in the city of New York. We had an office of vector and pest control. We did West Nile virus spraying. We did... Um, we had an office of radiological health. We we tested the public water supply. Uh, and then I was going to work on a beautiful Tuesday morning in September of 2001. I came out of the train, the subway, the, 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 two, the two train at uh, Church and Chambers Street and into this world that was utterly unfamiliar to me, right? It was the same street I'd walked on for, for 10 years. And, but this one, was completely silent it was full of people but they were all standing still and the cars were stopped in the street just stopped and the doors were open and the people were standing beside their cars and they're all looking up and so you know of course i looked up too and and the 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 north face of tower one was just two blocks from me and it was like looking up at a mountain and at the at, at the 90 the 92nd floor is this gigantic black gash across the north face of the tower. And, you know, that that's when my life changed that at that moment. That's when, you know, I turned to the guy next to me and I said, what the hell? And he said, he said, you know, they say a plane hit it. And you know that it's that that it's a crisis in New York when you're talking to strangers on the street. Right. So um, but um you know, everything in my life is really what happened up until that moment and everything that has happened since. And, and since that moment, I've been, you know, an emergency manager and I've worked in New York City in this business 
for 22 years now, and it's been a very, very busy time. And um, I was working, you know, I worked at, 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 at uh, OEM for eight years, and then I went to the American Red Cross. I was the chief disaster officer there for, for about three years. That was just an, an incredible experience. Super, uh, um, su super uh, uh, difficult and challenging. It's a 24-7 job. And uh, an old buddy of mine named Brad Gare was here at, at NYU. And he called me up one day and said, hey, let's go to lunch. So, you know, that's how all great stories start. And I, I thought, you know, I needed to slow down from the Red Cross. It was really just almost too much. So I came, I said, hey, wh why don't I get a job in the, in the healthcare business and slow down? You know, I wanted to slow down a little bit. And then, you know, I walked right into a global pandemic. So the slowing down part didn't really work out that well. But um, yeah, and so here we are. I had an interesting experience in Colorado when when I was uh, going through the recruitment process for the the head of uh, emergency management business continuity job in Colorado. Uh, the uh, hiring manager uh, who um, had, has since become a friend, Tyler Allison. He um, my first interview was over. Uh, well, there was no Zoom, you know, ten years ago, but there was yeah. some some video some video thing. And he flew me out there and. He said, uh, he said, look, you're coming from New York. You know, I just want to make sure you understand the Colorado Springs. And I hope he's listening to this. Colorado Springs is a sleepy little town. Nothing ever happens here. And, yeah. you know, I don't want you to think that this is going to be like a, you know, uh, you know, fast paced job. Well, it was, it was anything but the truth. It was high octane from the time I started. Two weeks after I started, we had a presidentially declared flood disaster in town. Uh, shortly thereafter, we had a major fire uh in a uh, major high-rise fire multiple alarms one of our power plants it was uh it was just it was non-stop and then we had uh the ebola outbreak and our ceo uh jerry forte had us uh rightfully so doing uh and that was tremendous experience too but it's similar to you uh, i was if if i thought i was going out to colorado for my my semi-retirement job it was not going to happen that wasn't the truth so i i feel you <laughs> You know, I, we had a we had a staff meeting with my team this week, and we were talking about that, and we were talking about the challenge of of emergency management, right? And the challenge is that we work in gray sky and blue, and 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 you and I were talking about this. I'd, I'd love to get into this concept of gray sky because I think it's super important to understand what we do. But you know, blue sky and gray. So blue sky is you know you're not in an active disaster, you're not you're not activated. And you're working around the clock. You're working long days, planning, training, exercising, convening those teams and putting them in the moment and preparing for that moment of truth, preparing for the crisis. And we here, we have to do that on three shifts. A lot of times we're, you know, one o'clock in the morning doing infant, an infant uh, abduction drill or 5 a.m. We're in the emergency department doing MCI drills. And so it's 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 really really high paced fast paced and 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 very um you know it it takes a lot of energy takes a lot of effort and then yet on top of that you know we are uh we have a lot of gray sky incidents we 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 respond to an average of two incidents a day in my in my team and they could range from anything anything from a fire safety alert in a hospital to a um, an IT outage to uh, to a um, you know a uh, an incident happening 
down the street with a demonstration where there's there's potential for violence, for instance. But you know, our phone rings. We have a we have an emergency number. We have emergency managers on call, and we work twenty four seven. So that's the that's why it's so difficult because you have you have almost a full time job on top of a full time job. So so that's spend, one. And spend a minute part, talking. Just spend right. a minute talking about your institution. I think it's important for the for the our colleagues who listen to this to understand the expanse of your uh, responsibilities. So it's an academic medical center, and an academic medical center there are there are dozens of them, but they are. Um, there are institutions connected with universities, therefore the academic side, but it has three primary missions, patient care, research, and education. So we have uh, we have uh, six acute care hospitals. We have uh, 400 uh, what we call faculty group practices, which are doctor's offices. We have uh, huge ambulatory sites where we do outpatient surgeries. We have uh, almost 400 research labs where we do clinical uh, scientific uh, translational research, um, and then we have two schools of medicine. We have one in the, the Grossman School of Medicine, and then we have the Long Island Grossman School of Medicine. So we have two um, schools of medicine. So, okay. and it's 45,000 plus employees. I'll tell you, Steve, the thing about it is uh, there is such a contrast between the professions that I that are my stakeholders, the, the clinical professions and how they work and emergency management and how we work. But one of the things is this, this organization I work with is one of the best anywhere on the planet. They have a commitment to excellence. They have a commitment to, to every patient experience to be an excellent experience for that patient. And they don't, that doesn't come lightly. There is a tremendous amount of expertise and focus and commitment and even sacrifice that goes into that. We, our team, uh, our our commitment is to measure up to that, to to match that level of excellence by the execution that we do on our side. And and what we're doing is we're enabling that work to happen. The the the, the chief medical officer in in Brooklyn doesn't have to spend his time worrying about whether I'm doing that for him. He doesn't have to uh, activate his team in advance and run at that problem. I'm doing that for him. So I'm. I'm uh, assuming and owning the burden of these external threats so that they can more uh, effectively focus on on the core mission of the business. That's what we do. You know that from 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 every everywhere. When you work in government, it's a little different, but but when you you know on the power side, for instance, you know delivering power is that super important mission, and you're working on those external threats to enable the those those engineers and all those people to 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 get power to where it's needed right um that's the that's the partnership absolutely absolutely so let's let's get back to um gray sky blue sky because we're we're going to head into you i think you were just about to head into uh, a point i want to make sure that uh, i parrot um about crisis management so you know and we talked about this this week uh Steve, back and forth a little bit. And one of the things I love about this podcast is, is it's unscripted, it's unrehearsed. So we didn't un, we didn't rehearse or script any of this, but we did. I did. Uh, we were just chatting back and forth, and I said, "There's a crisis in this profession of emergency management. We ourselves have a crisis, and it's a crisis of confidence. It's a crisis of um, 
uh, expertise. It's a crisis. Uh, it, it's a crisis of um, competence. And the nature of the crisis, in my mind, and by the way, all this is my opinion, and and uh, everybody is going to have their own about even whether this there is in fact a crisis. But for me, the crisis is that our ability to execute on the mission that everybody else expects of us, uh, that is the nature of the crisis. And, and for me, that boils down into two broad threads. The first is this public warning, early warning threat, the, what we call the notification step. We have, we have a five-step process. Watch, size up, notify, activate, and operate. That's that's our. Th those are the five incident management steps that my core team practices every day around the clock. Watch, size up, notify, activate, and operate. So that notify step is super super important, and that means you're telling everybody that needs to know uh, uh, when they need to know it, what they need to know. And we have, you know, we use a, a, a standard system. We use SendWord now but we send dozens of emails and text messages uh, um, every month about a range of issues, whether it be the uh, weather issues, whether it be uh, issues that we had, a, we had a smoke condition in the hospital the other day and we were telling people there is no fire, there is no safety risk, but we practice that. We have a process. We push out uh, clear, informative messaging to our stakeholders Around the clock, we had a, a the, it was a, the night before last, there was a bomb threat that that evac closed and evacuated the Port Authority bus terminal at 10 o'clock at night. We have a shift change at 11. So 10 o'clock that night when we saw that and we verified that, we pushed a an email and a text to all staff in Manhattan that the Port Authority bus terminal was closed and you're going to have to figure out another way to get home. And then And then we watched that job. And thankfully, it cleared up. When we got the all clear, we sent another message telling people that that it was back open again. And we and that's what we do. That is a core core mission of this business. If you're in this business and you're not doing that in some way, shape, or form, in my mind, uh, that is an example of this this crisis that that people expect that they're you're going to tell them what's going on, and you're not delivering on that. There was a there's a, a lot of discussion in the media about that, especially after what happened in Maui and the, the whole issue with the sirens. But there was an article in CBS News put out two days ago, and the title of the article is 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 damning in my mind. And it's basically saying, you know, that 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 emergency managers across the US are not alerting people and telling people when they're when their lives are at risk. And to me, that is that's that's failure. And and we're failing at that mission right now. Okay, let's stay on this because this is a huge pet peeve of mine as well. And side note, I have uh, Dr. Jeanette Sutton scheduled uh, for she's, the podcast. She's everybody should know her. Everybody should be reading her uh, her resources. She's a she is a, a key player to get us to where we need to be. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, I kind of feel like she picked up. Uh, the ball where Dr. Maletti may have left off. Uh, I, I'm, exactly. I'm not quite sure that that's a, a bad analogy. Well, and uh, she references a lot of his stuff. She just put out a, a lexicon that you, you know, that, that yep. public warning lexicon and Maletti's name's all over that, you know, Maletti led the way and, and she's picking up that baton, like you said, but, yeah. but, you know, you, you so just again, I'm, I'm just challenging 
challenging in our profession. If you're not reading Jeanette Sutton's uh, uh, products, if you're not, if you haven't read that lexicon yet, you need to get it. You need to read it. It's your job to do that. Okay, I'll call out her website is the Warren Room, I believe. In it's the called Warren the Warren Room, Room yeah. and uh, you could find her on LinkedIn. And I would encourage emergency managers, uh, crisis managers, uh, listening to this episode to certainly. Uh, uh, follow her, find her website, and uh, when her episode appears, I'll be sure to post that widely. Okay, my experience with warning and notification transcends decades to a time where there were no technologies, right? So there was no, when I first started emergency management, the internet hadn't been uh, invented by Al Gore, tongue-in-cheek, of course. <laughs> we had uh, in the 90s, in the mid-90s, you know, we we had mostly an internal email system. It was called Mayorland, and that was within the mayor's office. Uh, we didn't even have it at, at EMS or, or the fire department yet uh, when I had you know gone over to OEM. Um, but we, we did have a watch command, and watch command was responsible for mass notifications, um, basically by picking up the telephone. We did have a pager system, and we had group pages, and watch, watch commanders would send out pages, and, and stuff like that. But I, I, I have experience in different jobs that I've had, including at OEM, including uh, in Colorado, and including in consulting uh, opportunities, that there is a reluctance by people in our profession to send information. I believe there are, and you could, you could check me here, and this is part of the unscripted dialogue. I think part of that is people are... Um, I think you mentioned confidence. They're not confident that they're sending the right information. Yeah. I think some people, I think some of it goes back to, uh, I don't want to get into a whole Myers-Briggs thing, but there are personality traits where there are uh, introverts and extroverts and the introverts don't want to send information. I've seen that. And, and then there is a fear. And I think this is a big fear that people at our level are concerned about. And that is sending information that, that can land them in hot water and potentially cause them to be to be shown the door uh i believe people are concerned about elected officials or their upline in the corporate sector not liking the information that was sent i have stories along these lines from, from different jobs I, i've worked for in some jobs i was told i communicate too much and then when i dialed it back i've been asked where's the information and uh it, it's uh it, it's kind of a it's kind of a, a catch-22, but I do find that I've had to come up with aphorisms like, um, uh, when in doubt, send it out. Like I would tell, you know, the, a watch commander or a duty officer, you know, when in doubt, send it out. No call too small. Wake them up, you know, and I I, I believe that. It, it's, it, it's everything you said, and all those voices are in the heads of of, of our colleagues in this business and but the bottom line is, this is your job. This is your mission. So uh, how do you do it? Well, the first way you do it is that you, you have a process that's written down and you execute it. And you can practice it on the side. We practice. My team practices it every day because we send messages to ourselves, certain types of messages. Do you have a watch center at the hospital? Because you have a yes. pretty big, broad footprint. Yeah, we have a watch center. It's called the watch center, actually. And and what we've done is we partner with our hospital operators, our telecommunications center, and we've plussed it up. So we have a, a, a 911 uh, call center experience people that worked in, you know, in the Bronx and they worked in 
in uh, you know at uh, at uh, Metro Tech, you know, working with uh, NYPD and FDNY, and they are these these guys are uh, I, I, really. I, I'm glad to hear you say that because yeah. I truly believe, and you mentioned Jerry Howard very early. I want to just uh, spend a minute there. The program that Jerry Howard developed, Jerry Howard was the um, founding director of the New York City Mayor's Office of Emergency Management that has since morphed into the New York City Department of Emergency Management through city legislation. Yeah. Jerry passed away recently from a long battle with, uh, with, with illness, and it's very sad. And uh, we had a memorial service for him in, in Manhattan uh, probably about a month ago now. And uh, he was eulogized uh, in an incredible way by former police commissioner Bill Bratton. And I want to thank, thank Bill for that. Um, the program that Jerry developed and that, uh, you know, when we talk about growth opportunities, you said this in the beginning of the show, Kelly. When we talk about growth opportunities, when, when Jerry asked me to join the team, I could not imagine what that growth opportunity was going to be. And uh, it, it, it's really gratifying to hear you say you took the New York City model and apply it to a semi-corporate organization. I did that in Colorado in a smaller way, 45,000 employees opposed to uh, 2,000 employees and you know a couple thousand contractors. It's a bit, bit different, but you know we didn't have a watch center, but we had a duty officer. At one point, security was merged into my department, but the security operations center was still very physical security oriented. I, I didn't really uh, get them too involved in EM, but the EM duty officer was that individual on a weekly rotation, working that 24-7, getting the information, working the right. job, activating the, sending the push, and the, pushing the notifications out, activating the, the crisis management team, that kind of thing. So thank you for taking the model that we we developed that people say, oh, you know, that's public sector and applying it to a corporate organization. By the way, it worked for, It worked at the utility uh, in a smaller way. And I'm gratified to hear you say it works for you. To me, Steve, you know, it, it, it goes it goes back to core mission. Um, this watch function that we have and I learned it from you. I learned it from OEM. I, I saw how it works, why it works. It's an essential mission for emergency managers. It, and I'll, I'll just say it again. If you're working in this business and you have emergency management in your title or your department and you don't have a watch function, you don't have something that's watching out 24-7 on behalf of your organization for external threats. Um, to, to me, you know, it, 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 it's that your program is lacking. You're not, do, you're not executing the mission. That's your job, whether it be weather whether it be uh, it could be it could be um, crime on the street, it could be a um, you know power outage, uh, it could be even a regional event, it could be something happening uh, just to, just across the border in the next town over. But but you need to be watching it because so again those those five steps: watch, size up, notify, activate, operate. So the size up step, you're like everything that. that you're looking at, you're sizing that up. Is that and you're you're applying that worst case scenario. You're like. What is the worst case scenario for what I'm looking at right now? Is that okay? But at the me? risk of sounding like a couple, a couple of metro central guys, right? And you know where I'm going to go. Yeah. I have, as have you, and you're not from New York. You come from a rural state. Yeah. Uh, I have worked in both in my state emergency management capacity with counties that have an emergency management office that comprised that's comprised of the county emergency manager, and yeah. that's it. And same in Colorado, you know, small counties, 
that have uh, more of an agricultural population than than a human population. Are there solutions for for individuals such as these, be they technical or or manual, that this function can still happen? Hundred percent, hundred percent, right? Because every uh, jurisdiction in this nation has some form of 911 call center, some place, whether it be law enforcement only or a fire and law enforcement, but there are people awake at night answering the phone. And the, and the way you do it is you plus that operation up and that becomes a watch center. And it's not, it's, it, it, you don't need, you know, if I could wave a magic wand and have watch command, have uh, New York city emergency managers watch command, I would do it today. And, you know, I could spend, you know, we could we could spend four hours talking about how important watch command is to the city of New York. But because they not only are watching and sizing up, but when that job is happening and they, they they actually activate and they own that job until they can hand that over to whether it be the duty officer at OEM or or the, the duty team or whoever it may be, or or just just the deputy commissioner for ops and he rolls to the job with the CICs or whatever it may be. But but they they're they're watching, they're sizing up and they're owning it too. They'll own it until they can hand it to you know the operations side that can execute on it. But that's a seamless process. Ours, we do the same way, but we're you know we're we're we have uh, emergency manager on call for each uh, of our campuses and and we get the call from the watch center at two o'clock in the morning and they will own it while we're running in if we if if we need to. But and that's the other thing, right? We're we're we run in, we put eyes on these on these that that size up step's important and. We don't take the size up based on an email. Somebody said, oh, it's, you know, it's just this or it's just that, nothing to worry about. You know, we, we're, we're, if, if somebody's on the phone with me and they've got eyes on it and I can ask them what they're looking at and I can, I can satisfy myself that the, I can close that job, then I will. Otherwise, I, I got to put eyes on it. And that's, that's, that's what, what my team takes. Uh, you know, that's, that's what we take on board when, we, when we're the EMOC. So there's a lot of, ownership uh, that that we take for these external threats it it renders the the uh, organization overall more proactive um, because we run at these problems and we own them early and we activate our teams very early these these uh, bosses around here they want to know what's going on and we tell them and they want us to activate them and and get the crisis team together and uh you know understand the situation and surface the issues and solve the issues in real time. Yeah, I find that too with leadership. There was there was a plateau in my experience. Let me stick with the utility for a minute. There were a plateau of leaders that wanted the information. Uh, I worked for a CEO that wanted to know what was going on. He wanted me to call him uh, directly. Uh, there were times I would bypass. Actually, I worked for two CEOs. I did this for, for both of them. I would bypass... Um, my direct report, who I reported to Chief Corporate Services Officer, who actually was a fine gentleman from Williamsburg, Brooklyn, U.S. Uh, Air Force yeah. Colonel that had retired and landed, no no pun intended, in Colorado, and we're, we're still close. He's a Con Ed uh, guy? No, no, I did work with Con Ed guy, though. Uh, Wayne Vandeshire was a gas engineer at Con Ed. He was a general manager in our water services group when I was out there. But no, 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 he was uh, he's from Williamsburg. His his parents still live there, but he, he went out to Colorado. He uh, 
He ran uh, emergency. He ran emergency as a U.S. Air Force Colonel. He ran emergency services at uh, Shriver Air Force Base. Okay, and, you know facilities management, that yeah. whole that whole sort of like internal package, and that I included that the base Air Force stuff. overlay. That's a big big piece of of Colorado Springs for sure, right? Oh yeah, we have five five military installations in Colorado Springs. My organization, uh, the the utility I worked for, serviced four of them. That's the U.S. Air Force Academy. Yeah, that's that is uh, Peterson Air Force Base, and and that's going to be uh, Cheyenne Mountain Air Force uh, uh, Center, I think it's called, and that's going to have uh, well, what used to be NORAD. NORAD is still around somewhere. It's uh, I'm not going to get too much into where NORAD currently is, uh, not not just for security reasons, but because I I think it I think there's been some changes, but I was. Uh, uh, fortunate enough to know the emergency manager from Cheyenne Mountain and his team and my team and I were given a tour uh, into the real, literally the bowels uh, of this thing. And uh, and the other installation, I, I didn't mention it, was Fort Carson, big uh, 10th Mountain Division yeah. uh, military base. Yeah. So yeah, big Air Force overlay there. Yeah. Fort Carson's army though. Army, right. Right. Yeah. That, that's true. And there's a, this is great. There's a small naval contingent at, at Fort Carson now I'm, oh, really? um, yeah, and I'm 2,000 miles from the Pacific Ocean, <laughs> and they call it you ready, Port Carson. I love that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's great. I because you know we had a the uh, county city emergency manager had formed uh, early after I I got there, uh, and I, I'll digress just for a minute because I think this is also an important part of the collaboration effort that we take as emergency managers. He, he created a collaboration group that would get together bi-monthly and we would each of them, we would rotate who was hosting these things. So um, he hosted, uh, Brett Waters was his name, Brett hosted the first one. And we invited the military emergency managers. Each of the bases had emergency managers and some of the subcommands had emergency managers within them. And we had a number of universities in town and we had their emergency managers, public safety directors, and we had emergency managers from uh, other utilities. Even though utility I worked for was for service, we had other utilities uh, represented. And all all told, it was about 70, 75 people would come together and share best practices uh, bi-monthly. And uh, we would uh, we would host it at the utility. Then the next month, it might be at University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. They, are, they had an emergency manager. You know, what's the message there? Every place or many of our uh, allied or peer organizations have emergency managers. And when young people contact me at LinkedIn and say, help, I can't find a job, I tell them, look everywhere, look under every rock, uh, every NIP sector has an emergency manager. You know, I, I've done emergency management in the transportation sector, finance sector, healthcare sector, public health sector, um, uh, certainly, you know, water, water and wastewater utilities, energy. Guess. You know, it, it doesn't surprise me, Steve. I mean, 75 emergency managers in Colorado Springs coming together. And they're, that, you know, that's a that's a great example of emergency managers, you know, uh, doing doing emergency management stuff. That's coordination. I mean, when you connect together, there's no that there's no there's no uh, a formal organization. But that's what emergency managers naturally do is they connect teams together that, you know, don't exist formally. And uh, so that's the other, that's another sort of aspect of it. We have, so for in instance, New York City has five major healthcare uh, systems, including uh, Mount Sinai with Don Boyce, it has uh, Montefiore, it has uh, 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 NYU, um, New York City Health and Hospitals, Northwell. 
and we're all in competition with each other. There's an intense competition. I mean, you you drive down the the West Side Highway, and there's four billboards for each of these systems saying we're number one, we're number one, we're number one. But guess what? Uh, we have a we have a chat group. We're chatting all the time. We meet all the time during COVID. We talked once a week. Um, we're not in competition with each other. We share the same mission. We share the same goals. And so emergency managers cut across. And that's why for me, you know, you hear a lot of times about uh, people saying, well, I don't have the authority to convene these people or, or convene that those, those people. And, and to me, it's like, I'm an emergency manager. I can convene anybody I want. I can have a meeting with, I pick up the phone. You got his phone number or you got her phone number. I'm going to get him on the phone and I'm going to, we're going to get some like-minded people together and we're going to start solving problems. And that's what we do. Yeah. You wouldn't be surprised that I, I'm pretty sure I know all of the emergency managers at the hospitals just from, you know, my, my medical days. And, and they all know you, whether you uh, know them or not. I mean, you Kowalski's know, at, at uh, you know, at uh, uh, Sloan. Yeah, at Memorial yeah, Sloan. Walter Kowalczyk, uh, he was my boss at New Kowalczyk, York City EMS. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, no, it's good. He was, uh, and he then was he worked at EMS, right? He was an assistant chief at EMS. I when I was deputy chief in Queens, he was my boss. We came on together. We worked. We were we we did uh, we were ground pounding EMTs in 1980. I got you know stories. Yeah, you guys worked that uh, that that train derail on the on the Manhattan Bridge that time, right? Uh, on the yes, actually the Williamsburg Bridge, uh, 1995, the yeah. uh, the collision with fatalities, mid span. I actually wrote an article about that in one of the one of the trade tra trade journals. Yeah, yeah, I was uh, command post chief, uh, and Walter was the EMS incident commander. This is before the merger yeah. with the with the fire department. I know, you know, I certainly know Don Boyce, Art Ditzel, Mark Marino. I knew Derek Linda Reisman before she retired. Yeah. Yeah. Great, great group. I mean, yeah. absolutely. You know, and I am of the philosophy and this was drilled into me by, by Jerry Hauer. Emergency management is a people first profession. And I came up in the episode this week, uh, episode 31 with Ashley Gooseman. And uh, in fact, somebody in the, in the thread uh, called out the fact that, that, that we actually spoke about that. And I, he quoted me. I said, it's people before bridges. You know, you can replace bridges. You can't really replace people. Yeah. And, right. and, and, and he liked that. But yeah, I I am um, really happy to see that, uh, you know, you're working with such an esteemed group of, uh, of professionals. Uh, you know, I worked with Boyce when he was a medic and then we worked together in the private sector at Kroll before he became state emergency management director. I mean, I'm yeah. looking at this list. There's some serious talent in these hospitals. Well, there really is. And 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 a lot of it has to do with the the uh, this threat-rich environment that is New York. And you know that but better than anyone. And it's it's just, you know, we were talking about this, the the challenge of being in this business and working blue sky and working gray sky. There's an overlay on top of that, Steve. And we were we were talking about it in my staff meeting that you know, the pace has, um, it's just this, this, this uh, continuous acceleration of, of the pace uh, and the rate of change and the, the number of incidents and the intensity of the incidents, you know, 22 years and every, I don't know if I had, if I had a, a you know, a dollar for every time I said it's going to, you know, I'm busy now, but it's going to slow down. I say that all the time. Guess what? It never slows down. It only gets busier. 
and busier and busier. And even now today, you know, 2023, it's it, we're as busy as we've ever been and and we're getting busier. Um, you know, you talk about the, the, the perma crisis, you talk about this post-COVID environment, that's real, you know, and the, so that the, the, the critical importance of our business, our profession, you can't overstate it. We are so important to the communities that we serve and the organizations that we serve. We are, we are vitally important to them. And that is why we need to get better at execution. We need to understand that core mission a bit better and we need to execute on it. Well, I, th I think the emergency, I don't think, I, I want to make this as a positive statement. Emergency managers are no longer the hurricane and flood crowd. That That's that's pre-Hurricane uh, Andrew. The um, I believe the modern era of emergency management well, what I like to call the postmodern era of emergency management began in August of 1992 after Hurricane Andrew yeah. decimated Homestead, Florida. Right. Before that, we had, um, and and we were leading up to it. You know, we had James Lee Witt was already at FEMA. Jerry Hauer was uh, about to uh, get a, a state emergency management position, and then ultimately became you know emergency manager in the in New York. But the postmodern era. Of, of emergency management began. And that's where we started to pull away from the hurricane and flood, uh, you know, sort of natural hazards situation. And I think that became evident in New York when Jerry hired me. He said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, you know, I'm really interested in hurricanes. I've been studying, reading. I want to be the hurricane guy. Said, I got Pete Piccarello for that. He says, look, here's what you're going to do. He says, he says, I want you to lead the chemical terrorism, biological terrorism efforts. I had a little background in that because we did some planning around that in the 1990, 91 timeframe during the Gulf War One. So yeah, I did some reading and had some stuff. The growth opportunity to, to, to lead those efforts in New York City. My point is, we weren't the hurricane of flood guys. Now, I, we did have hurricane and floods. Our first declared disaster was a flood event from uh, Nor'easter in 1996 uh, my, our first disaster meeting after we formed a new agency that was uh in october 1996 uh, catastrophic flooding along pretty much all the coastal areas in each of the boroughs uh from uh, from the bronx down through staten island you know coney island queens springfield gardens was absolutely completely underwater mm -hmm. and, uh, and and we and we led those but so we did we did have that but being an urban area and because we worked for a mayor that had been u.s attorney and knew bin laden and knew the threat and Jerry, having background in the CSEP program uh, and chemical weapons, we, we were going to take that take that to the next step. Okay, today, emergency managers, and you posted something this week, and I responded, you posted something about corporate CEOs and what their threats were, and and, and you and I agreed with, with all those threats, but I also said, yeah. there's, there's something missing here, yeah. global instability. I could not have imagined the... Um, the crisis that has transcended the globe from what has happened in the Middle East. There's been instability in the Middle East time, time and time again. Yeah. This time it's different. It feels different. And, and you're hundred percent right about that, Steve. You said, you said they're not reading this. And and it's funny because I, I just posted, I looked at it. It was a, it's a reputable uh, source. And, uh, and then immediately you're like, Hey, are they even reading this? Cause nobody no, I said, are they reading the news? It's like, it's like yeah. they were asleep. And, and, oh, is that maybe that's it. Yeah. They're not yeah. reading the news. 
And uh, I was like, he's, he's 100% right about that. Because political violence. Where, where, where is the, where is the powder keg that Hamas lit? You know, the fuse on on October seventh, and that, you know, that that has not that explosion is not done yet. We we are just we're we're in the middle of it. Yeah, and we have another presidential election coming up, and yeah. the political violence that we saw on January sixth uh, is uh, certainly something we should be. We should be watching. And as an emergency manager, you may find yourself in a consulting position one day, as I am right now, working as a consultant to a global organization. It doesn't matter who it is, just to say that they are in many different places around the globe, including some hot spots. And my team and I are able to, uh, you know, provide them with I hope is is valuable counsel on on their on their programs. And uh, so, you know, what we do is really not just local okay um we're coming up on an hour and we didn't talk about gray sky we spoke about blue sky let's talk about crisis management so 22 years in this business and this is i was i was telling you i, I don't know how to say this without sounding like you know that the, the the vietnam vets when i was growing up and they'd be like you know you you don't you can't understand you weren't there and this sounds a lot like that and i, I just i have to apologize for that in advance but you know, I called I called my book Moment of Truth, and the moment of truth is is uh, comes early in a crisis, and that is when you you yourself perceive a couple of things. The first thing you perceive is you perceive the magnitude, the scope, the scale, uh, the consequences, the impacts of the crisis fully. That's when you first see everything. You see the, the the mist is cleared, the mountain is there, and you can see the whole mountain. That's the first thing. The second thing is that you have this, you've, you've talked to your teams, you know what's, what's happening, and you perceive what it is that you have to, uh, to confront the crisis. You understand your capability to respond. And so the gap between those two things, which is basically the job that you have to do and the resources you have to do it with, um, that normally is a pretty significant gap. And that causes you some uh, uh, anxiety, and I call it pain. I call it a pain point, and um, and it is especially if you have that ownership stake. If you, you know, at New York City Emergency Management, if I uh, uh, if I was the if I was the duty officer, I was uh, I was my team was up, the red team was up, and there was a you know a tornado that went through the 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 border between Brooklyn and Queens, right down right down that line. And my team is up. I own that job. And so when you when you understand, and the, my moment of truth was when was when Jim McConnell from our GIS team walked in with a map of all the not of all the three one one calls for down trees, and you could see the path of that tornado. There were thirty thousand down trees, and and so that is like uh, you know that's when you know you 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 go to the emotional basement right you're you're that cortisol that 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 uh uh the 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 adrenaline is flowing you're dropping down from into your into your lizard brain right and you realize that you know this is going to be your life for the next 5 weeks um so that that uh is to me you're preparing for that moment everything you do in blue sky is to prepare yourself for that moment of truth simple as that and if you haven't been in that moment where you've owned a crisis and had and had to be the one that has to execute on that, then you're missing a big piece of our business. And and I'll just tell you that 
your as an emergency manager, your boss, not only your boss, but the 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 people on the street that are walking by that know nothing about what you do. If you ask them, they would tell you that that's your job. So that it, all the people that that hear this this term emergency manager, you know, they they believe that it's a that it that it's primarily a response job. When I go anywhere else, I go talk to emergency managers in conferences and in think tanks. All they're saying to me is, we got to get out of the response business. We, you know, response, we don't want to do response. Respond, why are you talking about response? Don't talk about response because we're going to, we're going to uh, risk manage our way out of it. We're going to mitigate our way out of it. And, and I hope that they can do that. And I encourage all of that. But meanwhile, I, I'm going to, my phone's going to ring and I got to respond. We're not executing on the response side. If you go to AAR after AAR, and I look at every one that I can find, they all say the same thing. They all say the same thing. There was an absence of effective coordination. And guess We're what? not going to mitigate our way out of that. The fire service tried that and uh, maybe came close to it. Fires were down pretty, pretty drastically. Enter lithium batteries and fire deaths and structure fires are up. This year, we have seen 17 lithium uh, battery generated fire deaths in New York City alone. We had three uh, so, in Crown Heights on Saturday. We had another one in the Bronx this morning, another Crown, fatality. Crown Heights and, had, and that's had not three to say fatalities. That, that we shouldn't be working on it. That's not to say mitigation right. isn't super important because it is. But we can't do it at the expense. We, we, cannot, uh, uh, we cannot ignore the core mission. It's, and to me, it's, it's like, it's, it's like uh, and this is a bad analogy, but it's like the armed forces, right? If you go to the army or you go to the Navy or you go to the Air Force, they have these massive infrastructures and they do all of these things. But ultimately, the core is warfighting. They're supporting that warfighting mission. And and we everything we do in emergency management has to support the response mission. It has to it, you have to be effective in that moment of truth. That is your job. If you're not executing on that job, you know, in the this is what will happen. I've been there. You'll get called into that conference room when when the boss has has the executive team there and you're at the end of the table, a, a seat that you've never sat at before, but now the job is there and the spotlight is on you. And if you can't tell them all the things that are already happening and all the things that aren't happening, but when they're going to happen, they're going to look at you and they're going to say, what do I pay this person for? Why where do does, I have them here? So, okay, so where does this philosophy come from that emergency managers should come out of the response business? I was actually told in a private message last week because there was a, 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 a thread about this on, on LinkedIn that I was basically an old guy and that I'm buried yeah. in the past and that um, I, I'm not seeing the future because this individual, it doesn't matter who it is, and by the way, due respect, uh, his or her opinion, I, I just don't agree with it, is that um, we should work on prevention and mitigation. And and I believe I believe the individual is focusing on climate change. And my response there is we're already in climate change and uh, yeah, yeah, we've been dealing with climate crises for, for for years now, probably a decade or a decade or more. But this philosophy, and by the way, I reject that opinion, and not just not just because I am an old guy in emergency management. Yeah, 
And I'm going to say, you know, misery loves company, as are you, my good friend. Yes. We've been around for a while, but we're, it's we're... because of the experience and it's because of the programs we've built and developed that we understand where the lack on executing of the crisis management of the response mission is absolutely career ending. It's career ending. So, it's, so where did, where does it, it come be, from? Because, you know, you know, it, 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 Steve, I was in a, I was in a meeting the other day, just a couple of weeks ago, and I was with a, a, a 10 emergency managers. And one of them said, said, if you get 10 emergency managers in a room and you ask them what emergency management is, that you're going to get 10 different answers. And I, I almost, I almost fell out of my chair and I'm like, you, you know, you have to be kidding me. You have to be kidding me. I mean, it, it, it's to, to me, that is clear what we do. And but I, I compare it to what I do. I don't know. You take take uh, cardiac surgeons, you know, you put 10 cardiac surgeons in a room and you ask them what cardiac surgery is. I'll tell you what, you, you're not getting 10 different answers, Steve. You're not. And, you know, and if we are, that is it, there's nothing that indicates a crisis of confidence, a crisis of competence than than that statement to me that we can't even articulate what it is that we do that it it has to start there and and one of the reasons is to me is there aren't enough leadership voices they're starting to emerge you know we've got we've got uh uh you know Jeff Stern we've got uh, Pete Gaynor we've got you know yourself we've got um you know Brock and and, and all these other folks Deanne Criswell I think is a great leadership voice but it can't all come out of FEMA. One of the reasons it can't come out of FEMA, and God bless FEMA, you know, I'm on the knack. I'm a FEMA fan. I'm a FEMA supporter. I I, I think, you know, in the post-Craig Fugate era, they've really uh, upped their game. But ultimately, they don't get into that moment of truth the, the way that we do, because they're always a layer removed from, from it. And that's a that's an overstatement, right? The president thinks that they're in it, but ultimately the governor owns a crisis or a, or a catastrophe that's happening in that state, ultimately it's the governor. And then it's that local elected official, they own it. And then the, then the emergency managers own it on behalf of those elected officials, on behalf of that local elected official, on behalf of the governor, the emergency managers own it on behalf of them. And Deanna owns it on behalf of the president. And, but, but ultimately that response piece, it relies on the states, it relies on the local. That That's part of the problem is that you know, we've got a lot of expertise and resources at the top, but at the local level where that execution has to happen, we do not have the bandwidth. We do not have the expertise. We do not have the resources. And it's because it's because that local elected official doesn't understand the value proposition and, and, and primarily because we're not communicating it well. We're not showing it. How how is you know, you can talk to your blue in the face, but you have to demonstrate in that moment of truth, when you're executing, they see it. And that's how the value gets shown. Well, and how does that work in an here. organization? Because a lot of our colleagues are like you, and like I was in the past, working inside uh, an organization. You happen to report to a CEO who was not only a deputy mayor, he was the uh, he was the chief executive officer of the New York State-wide Metropolitan Transportation Agency, and I had a seat next to Joe Loda in the New York City office of, uh, uh, rather, the New York City EOC in my in my time. Yeah, and I've been with Joe at, at zero dark thirty with Mayor Giuliani and Jerry and and Police Commissioner Safer and uh, uh, Tommy Van Essen, Fire Commissioner. I was I had a seat at that table, and I am 
forever and eternally grateful for it. But so you work for a guy that understood it. Yeah. I, my guess is your your road that you have to travel to man, to to execute these programs, fund these programs, are 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 fairly easy for you because he yes. was part of it. Well, that's, I mean, that's I mean, he, one. he yeah, and the other. I mean, part Joe is- Joe was there for me. And one critical time, I was having a problem with another agency head, and uh, I called the good, the good uh, deputy mayor Joe Loda, and yeah. I'm not going to get into the story, but he fixed it for me, and he called that agency head and said, "No, OEM is asking you to do this. I, I need you to do this, or just you know stop by tomorrow morning at zero six hundred." You know, it's and, funny in my book, okay, and this is before you know uh, this is uh, uh, written in 2018. I talk, I have a chapter on, on New York city OEM and how it started and Jerry and, and you guys and how you built it. And, and that's what I say that in the book, it's like, you know, you're calling an agency at, at, at two o'clock in the morning on a freezing cold night. And you're saying, I need this and this and this from you. And they're saying, you know, listen, I'm not, I don't go on the clock till 9am. I, I, I can't help it. And you, and you say, listen, let, let me just tell you something. When I hang up the phone, I'm calling this, I'm calling city hall and calling Joe Loder. So we can do this the easy way, or we can do it the hard way. You can either you can either tell me when you're going to be there in 45 minutes at, at the latest, or I'm going to go up through City Hall back to your commissioner, and the call is going to come to you in 15 minutes from your boss who heard from the commissioner who heard from the mayor. So you want to do it the easy way, or you want to do it the hard way. And um, and 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 I mentioned Joe in it, so we're we're saying the same thing. But Joe Joe is a is a great crisis leader himself. The other the other reason it's easier for me is because this organization has gone through 9-11. It went through Hurricane Sandy, uh, the Tisch Hospital right across the street evacuated over 300 patients through uh, through the dark stairwells in the middle of the night. Well, it's right on the East River for those that don't know where this hospital is. And the East River is, uh, you know, on the on the, certainly on the east side of Manhattan, between Manhattan and Brooklyn, Manhattan and Queens, different parts of it. But it is uh, it's it's uh, the roadways, heliport, uh, the FDR drive. It's pretty low lying and the, the river floods. And we got 13 foot of water, a wall of water in the in the in the. Uh, I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. But but, you know, nothing teaches uh, better than than than. Ex- firsthand experience with the crisis. You see that here. You see that in Sonoma County. Maui County is going to be a different organization uh, in the future. They're going to transform it. That th- that's the nature of this business. When you when you have this crisis, um, and then that you you hire this group or you get this 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 commission of wise people together and they write this after action report, and then then they start to resource and right size the emergency management part. Look at what happened in Buffalo. You know, look at the investment they've made in the city of Buffalo. And that's paying off. I'm hearing Buffalo is going to get some lake effect snow in, in, uh, at, at Thanksgiving. So, you know, but our job is to is to articulate the value proposition before the disaster. So so that that so our organizations don't have to feel the pain and then fix it in the aftermath. They should fix it up front. True. Uh, a shout out to uh, Tom Luby, who was just appointed emergency manager for the city of Buffalo. Yeah, uh, I I happen to know Tom. Uh, Tom worked. Uh, Tom and I worked together at uh, New York City EMS Special Operations. I'm going back to the '80s, and uh, I was uh, captain and uh, unit head. And uh, Tom was uh, 
uh, you know, he was an EMT. He was a, he had been an air, if memory serves, an uh, airport firefighter on Long Island. And, and since, since that time, and I haven't seen him since he has grown tremendously in his career. He left FDNY as a captain and then served with the Port Authority uh, for four years as an emergency manager, then FEMA. And uh, I reached out to him and, uh, you know, wished him good tidings in his new role uh, as emergency manager for City of Buffalo. And you and I have been critical of Buffalo, and I think it's a good opportunity to just go on the record and say, um, good luck uh, with you, you know, with accepting the yeah. fact that you need an emergency manager and, uh, you know, uh, the talent you hired, I think will make it all work. He, he's the right person for that job for sure. And, and um, you know, and I'm, I'm sure he's already convening that team around that forecast. And that's an example of why you need the emergency manager. That mayor, the mayor's not looking at snow. Oh, uh, that's not true. They're looking at snow now up there, but, yeah. but, uh, but in the past, the mayor would be like, it's listen, it's Buffalo. It's snow. We get snow in Buffalo, but and now you've got that emergency manager that's, that's uh, wrapped around the, the risk. So I want to do a little recap. Um, I have, of course, pages of notes. Um, your program, um, I certainly applaud, and and it's gratifying to see an organization such as uh, a large healthcare system in New York City that's responsible for thousands of employees and thousands of patients um, it, it, use a program that was developed for a large urban population and make it work. Uh, I've I've tried to do the same, and I think with a, a modicum of success, and I'm happy to see that you have a five-step process that I think needs to be uh, called out. Um, watch, which is pretty much monitoring, size up, assessing the situation, notify. It's pretty straightforward, you know, an emergency notifications, warning, when in doubt, shout it out, and yep. uh, you know, make sure people have have the information, activate and operate. I like that a lot. I want to just throw in um, something because you, you you mentioned FEMA a second ago and uh, uh, a colleague of ours, and I believe uh, a good friend of both of ours, Tom Fargione, who was on uh, yep. episode recently, has five echelons that I absolutely loved. I'd never heard this before, but I think it's something worth, worth uh, uh, noting uh, for the listeners. Every disaster has five echelons that you have to address so it's sort of like like you say missions that you have to execute on tom says you have to uh, uh focus on the political echelon the policy echelon the strategy echelon the tactical echelon and the work assignment echelon man that is brilliant that yeah. goes from the highest level of policy political appointee down to the person with the shovel or the or the you know truck full of food and water and, and stuff like that absolutely love that and when we say FEMA doesn't have a sort of a crisis management mission, and, and I think we could debate that. I don't think you and I are in disagreement about that. There are some people in FEMA like Tom that absolutely understood crises. When I was with the state oh, yeah. I, I, and Tom was uh, head of the regional IMT, when I activated the EOC, I always wanted FEMA there because I believe in the, in the, in the three levels of government being presence. And, um, yeah. it, it, it was, it was, it was kind of like this weird thing, like, 
I would hang up the phone. I would turn around. He'd be standing there. And, <laughs> and, and yeah, and his team was great too. You know, Sam Benson was his ops chief and Sam came out of uh, Washington Heights, which is in North Manhattan. And somehow he made it to Albany and, in really quick time and and that's how it works so yeah so i, I I've walked I in i've walked in the eocs in in the most random jobs i walked into the harris county texas eoc during harvey and guess who the first person i saw there was huh yeah i saw farge he, he, you know his imat team was there. and you know I, I i don't want to imply that fema doesn't understand disasters because they absolutely do i mean tom, oh, absolutely of course tom ran that imat team uh how many years and that guy i just have so much admiration for him how many jobs did he work how many big incidents did tom was did, did, did he yeah. parachute into the middle of and you know he was essential for those things he really he also became uh, fco at some of those jobs and we also both know another fco uh former fdny battalion chief and oem deputy director phil parr who yeah. was also in one of our episodes phil's another uh you know, solid disaster professional and a character to boot. Yeah, and, good, uh, good, and good, good person too. So somebody you want your side. Okay, I think that's I think that's a wrap. Great show, great episode. I really appreciate uh, the common thinking we have. I think there's great opportunity for emergency managers out there to take lessons from you. Uh, certainly, your book. I would encourage all the emergency managers to go uh, and find a moment of truth. It's an it's a great read. <laughs> I don't mind saying this when the book was first published, I read it. Uh, I think I read it on Kindle, actually. I think you have it as an electronic version and I blew through it. As soon as I read, you know, squad 18 and the whole nuke thing, I was, I was attacked, and, <laughs> but, but you spoke about, you spoke about an emergency management system that I know works. And, and I would encourage others to seek you out, uh, to seek me out on LinkedIn or wherever and, and ask about, uh, this sort of uh, this sort of program. Um, I appreciate that you wrote the book, and I appreciate your reference to the early days of OEM and uh, it, and you know to all the all the folks that were there back in the day. You know, I saw many of them at Cherry's Memorial. Mike Byrne was there. Mike Berkowitz and Larry yeah. Naffo was there. In fact, Larry gave a uh, was part of the eulogy. Four people eulogized Jerry, and it was it was really really. Uh, well, they, you know, they say they say, you know, you stand on the shoulders of uh, those who come before you. And I and, and, and I definitely do that with you, Steve. I mean, um, I said before the show, you know, we talked about uh, how when I was uh, the duty chief at OEM and we had big incidents and you were running the state, New York State, and Jerry was the secretary of Homeland Security. And the, that the way that you all work with us is textbook. Not only because you knew New York City and you knew how New York City worked, but you knew how the, the you knew how FEMA worked and you knew uh, uh, how to bridge that gap. And um, you know, I think they should do some research on that because that was uh, you know that's when you um, I mean you had tremendous respect in in OEM itself, but the way you and Jerry worked basically you know it was like just just say yes, just do it. Like we there wasn't a lot of pushback and you guys just executed on your end. So. Um, you know that I learned. You know I learned everything that I know from you and Jerry and and all those uh, folks that built OEM in the day. That's why I wrote it in the book to to show others to say this is how you need to do this work. That means so much to me. You know, as I as I travel um, my sixty second trip around the sun, and having been in OEM many years ago, uh, it, it's really gratifying to hear. That stuff that I worked on so many years ago meant so much to so many people. You know, 
we developed in New York City OEM the pod concept that was executed nationally for the pandemic. Yep. That was, I'll tell you who it was, sitting in my office at 100 Church Street. Now, I say that for a reason, because OEM, when you were, when you were there, was, um, were you in Brooklyn? You were in the Brooklyn yeah. office. Well, we were 11 Water Street. 11 Water Street, because Seven World Trade Centers, where I worked after 100 right. Church, collapsed. In the early days, we sat in my office, myself, Mike Berkowitz, Sam Benson, Rebecca Rabin, Dr. Rebecca Rabin. Now yeah. she was a young intern at the time. And we, we, we were conceptualizing at Jerry's direction, how do we do this? And we came up with the term point of distribution and the, and the distribution system and how we integrate the, the newly formed uh, stockpile, the national strategic stockpile. Quick story. You speak about, we speak about risk often and we talk about how well we work together. I got a call from you uh, and I was downstate, actually, at the time. I wasn't in Albany. And this is something that will never appear on anyone's risk assessment. You said, and this is how the conversation started, Steve, it's Kelly. And we knew each other. In fact, we had appeared together at a conference in Tarrytown. We had, we bumped into each other in Burger King, had lunch standing at the counter, and then we yeah. went to the National Guard, uh, New York yeah. State National Guard, did Catastrophic Disaster Management Conference. You and I were yeah, speaking. I remember that, right. Right. And then we went there. And he said, and he said, you said, I need every vac truck you have in the state to come down to New York. I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's like, we have an overfluorination event, in one of our reservoirs. And we have, we're starting to open fire hydrants throughout the entire borough of the Bronx and, and Manhattan. And we have fire companies out doing that, right? You have every, every fire company out doing that. And I, I couldn't even imagine this. And, um, and, and it was just, okay. And I started pushing VAC trucks from the Department of Transportation, Department of Environmental, whoever had them. And some of them were hours and hours and hours away, but we started moving them. And uh, you were able to get the the, fluor the fluoride levels down uh, to a, a, a safe point, but there, were, there was an issue. And uh, I remember Calvin, who was first deputy at the time, calling me up and saying, he's like, I'm in a jam. Like, what happened, Calvin? I love Calvin. He's like, Mayor Bloomberg just called. He wants to know why all the fire fire hydrants are open in uh, in Manhattan. And here we talk about the, the communications piece, right? He says, I called everybody, but I forgot to call him. So, you know, make sure you call the boss. This is what there. happens. Right. I forgot to call the mayor. Oh, my God. I forgot God. to call the mayor, but you got it down. But yeah, I was right. I'm sitting in, I'm sitting at home, my downstate home, because, you know, I had an apartment upstate and uh, and we're working the job and we were just working a job like old brothers. And, and that's how it was. I just I, I want to key on that point, right? And this because this and this is my this will be on my uh, uh, you know my this will be my epitaph. But the way a lot of states will work is when that call happens, that that person at the state level will be like, well, what do you need back trucks for? And you'll tell them, and they're like, you know, let's. I don't think you need to do it that way. Why don't we start to do it this way? And they try to they try to engineer the job. And you're like, listen, listen, bro. This is the this is the seventeenth conversation I had about this, and this is where we're at. We can't go back now. And then, and so let's just say that 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 they convince the state, okay, they're going to start getting those rolling. Then the then the state goes, well, I have to go, I have to go up to FEMA, or I have to go somewhere else to to get them. And then they have the same conversation with that other level. You know, there's these these back and forth where people are trying to overrange because they're not in the conversation. That's why this whole notion of you know uh, escalation quickly doesn't work because the, everybody isn't a Steve Kerr that you you and I talked, and the next thing you know, you're trying to cut cut all those loose though there's too many conversations that have to happen in order for for those resources to flow and well you you expressed a criticality to me too and i knew 
we didn't have a lot of those assets downstate. Why would yeah. we? We have New York City that has those assets. Well, right. you you pressed all your vac trucks into service. What you needed to do was get them up to the reservoir and 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 uh, vac evacuate the water as much as possible before it entered the the, the drinking water system. Correct. And, right. and, 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 and it worked. I mean, we got it done. You flushed the system. Yeah. Uh, you know, the solution to pollution is dilution, right? You've yeah. heard that. And, and that's what you guys did, but you're right. You called me up with a message. It was very simple. Here's what we got. Here's what we need. And we had longer conversations later, but not before I called the state watch center and started having them gather the agency heads uh, and having them press their their trucks into service and putting them on the thruway heading south, and we had right. uh, quite a just, number of them heading south. Just get it on the road, and we'll we'll figure it out. I'll I'll yeah. tell you later. Just put it on. Just put it in route south, and I'll tell you where to go. Well, hey, I'm going to use a term that you and I both use: make the ask, right? Exactly. Make the ask. Exactly. All right. Wow, that was great. Um, I want to thank Kelly for joining Five Minutes to Chaos and for sharing his career experience and our our philosophies and concepts on crisis and emergency management. Five Minutes to Chaos drops weekly on Thursdays. Please follow us or like us on your favorite platform and set it to alert so you know when an episode drops. I welcome your comments and questions, which can be submitted in the comments area of the show or directed to me on LinkedIn. If you want to hear from or you want to contact Kelly or I, I will have uh, Kelly's uh, LinkedIn contact information in the show notes and uh, myself as well. And until next time, embrace the chaos. And that brings us to the end of this episode of Five Minutes to Chaos. We hope you enjoyed exploring the many facets of the incident we discussed today and gained some new insights and perspectives along the way. Remember, confronting chaos is not something to be feared or avoided. It is a central crisis management role that we can learn to embrace and navigate with robust leadership and personal resilience. By embracing chaos, we can tap into our creative potential, adapt to situations more easily, and find a way to overcome the challenges of complex emergencies. I'd like to thank our guests and experts who shared their insights with us today. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us. We hope you found value in today's episode and invite you to continue exploring the many aspects of complex crisis management. Don't forget to subscribe to 5 Minutes to Chaos for more thought-provoking conversations and insights. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review or sharing it with a friend and colleague. Until next time, embrace the chaos. Thank you.